This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, August 25th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Matt Hoish. In today's headlines, Sheriff urges caution of armed man. Public health discusses county mask mandate. Telluride temporarily halts short-term rental license growth. And a mountain weather forecast. But first, San Miguel County lost two of its residents. On Monday night, Daniel Kuhn of Dry Creek Basin was found dead in his home. According to the San Miguel County Coroner's Office, Kuhn had been fighting COPD and other medical issues. Norwood EMS responded, but was unable to resuscitate him. The cause and manner of death are under investigation. Crippen Funeral Home will attend to services. Kuhn is survived by his wife, Lane. He was 60 years old. Early on Tuesday morning, Telluride resident Judith Hall passed away at her home after a battle with pancreatic cancer. She was surrounded by family when she passed. Hall was in the care of Touch of Care Hospice. Crippen Funeral Home will provide services. Hall is survived by her sister, Elizabeth, her son, Trevor, two grandchildren, and her husband, Warner. She was 79 years old. San Miguel County Sheriff Bill Masters is urging caution after the discovery of an illegal campsite in the Mill Creek area near Telluride. According to the sheriff's office, the campsite belongs to an armed man who has been arrested three times in Norwood and Telluride over the past several months. Charges have included weapons offenses, burglary, possession of meth, trespassing, and theft. The sheriff's office notes the man has been released by a judge on bonds over the objection of the district attorney's office. On Monday, the sheriff's office discovered more than three dozen weapons at the site, including knives, hatchets, a crossbow, and several swords. The man's whereabouts are currently unknown. COVID cases in San Miguel County remain elevated, but not at the point yet to require more restrictive public health orders. That's according to San Miguel County Public Health Director Grace Franklin. I've really been weighing recently how, like, how can we as a community in public health um, continue to support those um, that are vulnerable, support those that can't get a vaccine. And we know the answers are wearing masks indoors when, when public, getting vaccines, and staying home when sick and getting tested. Um, and so what are the actionable pieces? And really, um, it would be that indoor mask um, mandate in public. Franklin spoke at a San Miguel Board of County Commissioners meeting this week. At the moment, Franklin says the county is sitting in level yellow. If we um, are in level orange, um, so two metrics, either positivity rate, incidence rate, or hospitalizations in level orange, um, at that time, I would um, consider an indoor mask mandate um, for the public across the board for the county. Local cases went down some over the past week. However, the trend locally and statewide is still going up. You could see that we're continuing to have that upward trend. It's gone down um, a little bit, but I don't think that that is really indicative of a, a decline. She adds, when you look at surveillance testing from the wastewater treatment plant, numbers are fluctuating, but on an upward trend. That still is in that like 
early spring kind of disease burden. And so we're not really in a, a true low disease burden based off of this surveillance testing. Franklin notes across the state, the percentage of fully vaccinated individuals testing positive for COVID is also going up. It's about 10 percent. But she says that's to be expected. It's still much lower than the 30 percent of unvaccinated individuals testing positive. That's to be expected as there's a larger proportion of vaccinated people. So the higher the population, the rate will continue to um, grow as well. But when you compare it to unvaccinated um, individuals and their case rates, see there's a huge difference between the two different groups and really showing the benefits of limiting infection and severe disease through vaccinations. As ever, hospital capacity is a main point when looking at COVID response. According to Franklin, statewide hospital beds are about 80 percent capacity with COVID patients. She adds at 85 percent, the state would likely consider adding additional public health restrictions. And locally, hospitals are even more strained. Anecdotally, um, this last week, our, um, our ER here in um, the county One of them um, had issues transferring a patient to one of our regional hospitals where they actually were rerouted mid-drive because of capacity changes. San Miguel County Public Health will continue providing weekly updates to the Board of County Commissioners on the state of COVID across the county. If the county moves into a sustained level orange, public health will likely implement tighter COVID restrictions. Telluride has pushed the pause button on short-term rental licenses. On Tuesday, town council suspended issuing most new licenses for six months via an emergency ordinance, which, unlike a traditional ordinance, only requires one reading rather than two. So we do have to show that this is an issue of preservation of public property, health, peace, safety, or welfare of the town. That's town attorney Kevin Geiger at Tuesday's council meeting. According to the ordinance, the half-year pause gives town time to further research the impacts of short-term rentals on the area. Courts have generally looked at this and they've said you can do a comprehensive study on a variety of complicated issues and generally conclude those within 6 to 12 months. The move comes amid a local housing shortage and an explosion of tourism and demand on local services as well as an unprecedented number of new short-term rental license applications. According to town clerk Tiffany Cavanaugh, there have been about 40 since the start of the month. The monthly average for the last seven years, Mayor Delaney Young notes, has been seven. Here's Young. I'd say that's pretty much a land rush on STR licenses. The suspension will effectively prevent the number of short-term rental licenses from growing, though it's not strictly a suspension on new licenses, After debate, council added a carve-out, so if someone buys a property that already has a license, the new owner can have a license for that property. That move mollified widely voiced concerns that the moratorium would impact property values and unjustly restrict the property rights of people who already have licenses and want to sell. The emergency ordinance passed 6 to 1, but not without a good deal of discussion and disagreement. Councilmember Lars Carlson was the lone no vote, He doesn't think the moratorium is an answer to the ultimate emergency, lack of places for people to live. You want greater long-term housing, and this isn't going to create it. So how how does this affect the emergency? During public comment, Donna Neely, a part-time resident, also observes the suspension could dent the tax revenues from real estate sales that help fund the town's affordable housing efforts. 
aren't you going to fundamentally impact what happens with real estate sales for the rest of the year? And isn't that undermining what you're really trying to do in terms of raising money for affordable housing? Lolly Lavercum lives in town full-time and sees things differently. A moratorium or a suspension to me on a council shows that they are prioritizing not only commodity and investments and money, but the community members who live here and finding um, solutions that are not just affordable housing options that take time and money and approvals. Council member Geneva Shawnette also notes the move is a way to relieve pressure as town approaches a November election likely to focus heavily on housing. What we're talking about is a pause for right now so that we can get through the election and quell some of the emotional um, extreme feelings that everybody's feeling right now and just take a breath. Telluride suspension of most new short-term rental licenses went into effect on Wednesday, immediately after council's vote, and will remain in effect until February 24, 2022, with some leeway for applications already being processed. Several other Colorado mountain towns, including Crested Butte and Steamboat Springs, have taken similar moves to temporarily restrict short-term rental growth, as they also struggle with housing shortages and a surge in local tourism. But the move isn't universal. Last month, Vail Town Council rejected a moratorium, but we'll still move ahead with a study to look at local short-term rental impacts. Two ballot questions about housing are working their way through the machinery of democracy to potentially go to the voters in Telluride's November election. The first is a citizen initiative to restrict the number of short-term rental licenses in town to 400 starting in 2023 with some exceptions. Licenses would be issued through a yearly lottery. Earlier this year, sponsors collected a little less than 130 verified signatures of town electors to get the question on the ballot. On Tuesday, town council was scheduled to review the question and either implement it or send it to the voters. But a protest submitted the day before alleges it violates the town charter and Colorado law by including a misleading title that could lead voters to believe the question will result in the creation of long-term housing. That outcome, the protester argues, is a speculative jump about the outcome of the question. So, town will hold a protest hearing on Tuesday, August 31st, to hear from the petitioners and the protester. Town Clerk Tiffany Cavanaugh will serve as the hearing officer. Here's Cavanaugh at Tuesday's meeting. I think the possible outcome could be that I find that either there are grounds for the protest um, or there's not grounds for the protest, and then it could still be sent to the ballot. Town Attorney Kevin Geiger notes the protest process has happened in other jurisdictions, but... I don't think Telluride has had this. At least in the 15 and a half years that I've worked for the town, I'm not familiar uh, with a protest process that's been filed. Uh, nevertheless, it is there and there are applicable statutory provisions and those provisions will be followed. Since town has to hold a protest hearing, council took no action on the citizen initiative. But they did take action on a second question brought forth by members of the public as an alternative to the citizen initiative. That proposed ordinance would take a couple of approaches to help with housing capping short-term rental licenses for two years, doubling business license fees for several types of rental, lodging, and accommodations businesses to fund affordable housing efforts, dedicating funds from the town's real estate transfer tax to affordable housing efforts, and creating a new workforce affordable housing fund. Keith Hampton is one of the proponents of the proposal and says it has two key benefits. One is that it's immediate. 
where the citizens initiative doesn't take effect until 2023. And second, we believe it's creating funding sources and creating actions while not possibly creating unintended consequences for the economy. Council was split on whether to approve the proposal for the ballot. Here's council member Adrian Christie. I have no desire to refer this specific document to the voters. However, what I am seeing is a menu of options proposed by some community members of actions that town council could take that they feel comfortable with. Mayor Pro Tem Todd Brown and Council Member Geneva Shawnett had similar feelings that council could take action on the proposal without going to the voters. Council Member Tom Watkinson feels otherwise, saying the second proposal would do more than the citizen initiative to help with long-term housing and wants it to go to the voters. It was reactionary to the citizen's initiative because the citizen's initiative doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Like you're just gonna cut back number of short-term rentals in order to increase long-term housing, and I don't see where that's going with that. Councilmember Jesse Ray Arguez and Lars Carlson feel similarly. Public comment was largely in favor of putting the proposal on the ballot. If it's not, then we're taking away the choice, and it could be confusing to voters. You adopting portions of this that you like, then people who were on this call for eight hours may not understand what those changes have been implemented. So when they go to vote, it looks like they only have one choice. That was Erica Gioga. Pepper Raper Contillo, however, thinks since the region is in a housing crisis, council should take action sooner rather than later when possible. I suggest that council, instead of sending it to the voters and waiting two months and hoping it passes, take what they can from it currently and pass it in now instead of in two months. With a 3-3 split, Mayor Delaney Young urged council members to find a compromise, asking those opposed which parts of the proposal they would be okay putting to the voters. After much discussion, council settled on putting two parts on the ballot, the doubling of business license fees and the two-year license cap. They declined to put forth the reallocation of rent revenue due to concerns about longer-term financial uncertainty and the creation of a new fund, since town already has an affordable housing fund. Council still has to pass a resolution to put this question, and depending on the outcome of the protest hearing, potentially the citizen initiative, on the ballot. That has to happen ahead of a statewide deadline of Friday, September 3rd at 9 a.m. Council plans to address the needed resolutions at their meeting on Thursday, September 2nd. So, for the time being, one question is likely headed to the voters, and the other is in limbo. Freebox lovers rejoice. The long-awaited return of the Telluride Institution is nearly here. I have been cleared to uh, to open the Freebox uh, from my boss, Paul Rude, Director of Public Works, uh, as soon as we see fit. That's Telluride Streets and Utilities Superintendent Rich Estes speaking to Telluride Town Council this week. He notes there are still a few small hurdles to overcome before the box officially reopens. One major step already complete is hiring a free box team leader. Becky Bohm will be stepping into that position. I'm super excited to take on this role as a free box crew leader. Um, as well as all of you, I want to see the free box be a successful you know, as the community, and we all want it to be. Um, I know there's been some struggles uh, in the past few years with keeping it clean, but that's what I'm here for. So, you know, I've got some great crew, and I'm just really excited to be a part of this team. 
The town plans to reopen the free box on Monday, August 30th. The free box will be free once more. The Telluride Ski Resort will temporarily close access to Telluride Trail and Camel's Garden Trail next week. The closure comes as the resort plans to install new automated hydrants that will help open the trails on the Telluride side of the mountain more quickly and efficiently in the winter, according to Scott Pittenger, Director of Mountain Operations. The trail closures are a safety measure since the construction will generate the risk of falling rocks and debris. Telski anticipates the two trails will be closed from Monday, August 30th to Friday, September 3rd. The short loop will remain open. Some state lawmakers are advancing plans to build an iron fence around the state capitol building despite concerns from former lawmakers about the message it would send. KOTO's Scott Franz has more. Funding for the six-foot-tall security upgrade was tabled in March after former lawmakers protested it. But a committee voted to advance a specific design for the fence last week after law enforcement officials spoke in favor. Colonel Matthew Packard leads the state patrol. We can close uh, the gates that will be installed there, proposed to be there, so we can actually have a, a buffer that we can enforce uh, to keep the building uh, secure during, uh, during after hours. Some lawmakers fear it would make the Capitol look like a fortress. Supporters point to damage caused during last year's racial justice protests as a reason to add one. The move would require several more votes before it would actually be built. Meanwhile, the state is moving ahead with new lighting and stronger security doors. I'm Scott Franz. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for scattered showers tonight with a low around 50 degrees. Thursday, expect mostly cloudy skies with scattered showers and thunderstorms and a high around 70 degrees. Thursday night should be partly cloudy with scattered showers and thunderstorms and a low around 50 degrees. Friday calls for mostly sunny skies with a high near 70 degrees and a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms. Friday night, expect partly cloudy skies with a low around 50 degrees. This has been the news for Wednesday, August 25th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 728-3206. We would like to thank everyone who has donated to Kodo during our summer fund drive. A huge thank you to Mohana, Kathleen Erie and Harry Hartman, Yvonne and John Moser, Nick Kennedy, Bob Puff, Jim Jennings, George and Becky Harvey, Phil Hayden and Lee Sullivan, Walter Weatherson, Zach and Robin Templin, Carson and Hillary Taylor, Chris Gertz, James King and Beth Mayer, Erica and Dan Henschel, Robin Watkinson, Lee Zeller, James and Virginia Lucarelli, Peter Harrelson, Karen and John Dix, Mark and Terry Dollard, Alan Cooper, Pam Specker, Miles and Nicole Cook, Angela Mallard, Jim Pettigrew, Pam Guillory, Rosie Cusack, Sean and Tracy Keenan, Shauna Palmer, Lou Mentz, Barbo Hackett, Ted and Anna Wilson, Mick Varner, Ashley Bowling, Dan Freshly, Dirks and Cassidy Bentley, Tyler Courtney, and Marty McKinley. Thank you all so much. And now, personal commentaries. Hey there, Kodo listeners. This is Joan May, Secretary of the San Miguel County Democratic Party. 
Your local Democratic Party is hosting a meet and greet for the Democratic candidates of the 3rd Congressional District who are gearing up to beat Lauren Boebert in next year's election. The meet and greet takes place on Monday, August 30th from 3 to 4 p.m. at the Transfer Warehouse. It's free and open to all. Spanish language translation will be available, so please invite your Spanish-speaking friends. Bring your questions for the candidates. Here are the candidates who will be here. Debbie Burnett, Carrie Donovan, Kelly Rhodes, Sol Sandoval, Colin Wilhelm, and Donald Valdez. We are also hosting the Beat Bobert Barbecue the same day and place, that's August 30th at the Transfer Warehouse, from 5.30 to 9 p.m. We'll have food by Oak, music by Birds of Play, and a really entertaining and inspiring program hosted by ringleader extraordinaire Colin Sullivan that will include all the current Democratic candidates for the third CD and some other great guests. Due to COVID concern, tickets at smcdemocrats.org are very limited. If you miss out on the barbecue, don't worry. This is just the beginning of our campaign to build up efforts to strengthen democratic principles across the Western Slope. And also, you can still come to the meet and greet, which is open to all from 3 to 4 p.m. at the Transfer Warehouse on Monday. But if you do have tickets to the barbecue, or if you're planning on coming to the meet and greet, please note that per county health order, Proof of vaccine or negative COVID test results within 72 hours of the event will be required for entry to these events. Please bring your vaccine card or proof of negative test. Also, if you have any symptoms of illness, please stay home. Ticket refund requests will be honored. And if you can't come but want to donate to the cause, please visit smcdemocrats.org. Your donation will go toward efforts to flip the third CD in 2022. Hope to see you at the meet and greet and the Beat Bobert Barbecue. Thanks so much. Hey there, it's Sarah Holbrook, the executive director of the Pinhead Institute, based in Telluride, Colorado, and bringing STEM education to rural southwestern Colorado. Um, hey, we have two kind of cool science stories for you today. First, I'm going to give you a little lesson on some things up in the sky from the NASA JPL, that's the Jet Propulsion Laboratory website. We're talking about asteroids. Asteroids are rocky fragments left over from the formation of the solar system about 4.6 billion years ago. What is a comet? Comets are relatively small, fragile, irregularly shaped bodies and, like asteroids, left over from the solar system formation process, but they are, I love this, icy dirt balls that form in the outer solar system. I love that. And then if um, asteroids break up into smaller sizes, those are what meteorites are. And then when meteorites enter our atmosphere, they're called meteors. The reason I'm giving you this little lesson is because there's a cool new story in the New York Times science section talking about kinetic impact deflection. It's what it sounds like. It's knocking rocks in space with other rocks in space in order to change their orbit so they don't come too close to Earth. Am I right, Ashley? Yeah. Yeah. Ashley's the new um, teacher here at Pinhead. She's going to tell you in a minute about our classes that still have room so you can sign your kids up. But that's a super cool article. It's all about kinetic impact deflection and 
Next year, they're going to test this on a real asteroid in the solar system for the first time with NASA's double asteroid redirection test DART mission. Um, and just so you know, that asteroid that they're going to be knocking about is not in danger of knocking into us. It's just a test. This is only a test. Another super cool article, but kind of terrifying at the same time, from the New York Times Science Times itself tells us that it rained at the summit of Greenland. That's never happened before. Anyhow, you can check those all out at the New York Times or on the Pinhead Facebook page. Um, and here's Ashley. She's going to tell you what you should sign your kids up for. Hey, so I just wanted to promote um, our mini makers session this fall um, for kids K through four. And we'll be learning science and then doing some hands-on construction projects. And then our art lab project where we will be partnering with the AHA school. Um, and that is for grades three through six. And we'll be learning about optical illusions. Optical illusions are so cool. Oh my gosh, I'm looking at one right now. And you guys really have to check out the Penhead website. You know what it is www.pinheadinstitute.org. If you click on the classes and camps tab, it will take you to our classes that you can sign your kids up for. And on that very page, you'll see, oh my God, a crazy optical illusion. I'm not even going to talk about it. You have to see it for yourselves. Anyhow, thanks for listening. Pinheadinstitute.org. Check it out now. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Cotto. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.